This morning, our sermon text comes from the book of James, chapter 5. It's, it's written for you right below the song we just sang. But if you have your Bibles, I, I do invite you to um, open them up and, and turn to the book of James. After a few weeks away, uh, we, we are back for the home stretch. We have uh, three more messages from, from this book after Palm Sunday and Easter, and then uh, Dan taking us through the book of Daniel last week. Uh, we have to get into the mindset that, that we, we've been in for, for so much of this year, which is wisdom in the way of Jesus. And, uh, and even this passage this morning, you'll, you'll hear that it sounds a little bit different from much of the book of James that we've been looking at, if you recall um, where we've been. This is still all about wisdom, and so let us give our, uh, our careful attention to the reading of, of God's word for us, and this is from James chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury. And in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Again, what we need to do this morning is get back in the mindset of wisdom in the way of Jesus. And if you remember, what is wisdom? When we think of biblical wisdom, it's, it's not just about right belief and right thinking and right doctrine. It's about a applied teaching, right? It's about a, a well-lived life. Wisdom is spiritual fitness. Wisdom is spiritual fitness. Fit to follow Jesus in our day-to-day lives with whatever obstacles we come up against, whatever scenarios we find ourselves in, we are fit disciples of, of Jesus. Now, we talk a lot about fitness in our culture. Uh, it, it's everywhere. It's about every other billboard in town. I'm trying to get us to come back to the gym. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And yet, this kind of mindset of, of fitness and exercise for the sake of fitness and exercise is a pretty recent phenomenon, historically speaking. Um, one argument said that you know, this idea of fitness for fitness sake, it came into the mindset of, of Western culture, at least, about halfway through the 20th century, and one of the big technological innovations was the fact that you had the invention and then distribution of mass market cameras. We began to see what we looked like, <laughs> and we said, oh, no. Historically, though, fitness always meant fit for purpose. For most of human history, there's been exercise. I mean, there's always been exercise. There's always been this kind of thinking about what it means to be fit. The ancient Greeks and Romans had the gymnasium that made them fit for battle. 
made them fit to defend their country, or they were just fit to do the jobs that they had, which is different than fitness for fitness sake. I think I gave this story at one of our Sunday evening studies a, a few weeks ago, but I had two college roommates that I think illustrate this idea pretty, pretty well. Uh, one of my college roommates was an aspiring bodybuilder. Worked out, took all of the supplements, had posters on his wall, talked about muscles all the time. I had another roommate who was a normal guy. So we go home for the summer, and normal guy goes and he works on a farm all summer, and he comes back and he is shredded when he comes back from working on a farm. He's got these traps that are just huge. And so the bodybuilder roommate goes, I would kill for those. To which my response was, why? Why do you want them? And his answer was, because it looks good. Just because. I think that's a wonderful comparison between fit for purpose. He was, one guy was just farming. The other guy wants to be fit for the sake of fitness. And that's a great analogy for biblical wisdom. To not just know doctrine, to not just know the Bible, to not just know the, the theology, to get puffed up, as Paul says, or we might say, just to get spiritually buff. Because there's always a danger of vanity when you're just spiritually buff. No, we want to be fit for a purpose. Fit for following Jesus in this world with its challenges and trials and temptations. And this is what wisdom is. Wisdom is fitness for following Christ in this world. And so what does that look like, right? What do the training sessions look like? Well, we're thinking about our words and how we use them. We prepare for trials and suffering. We don't show partiality even though we maybe lean towards showing partiality. Last time we looked at the arrogance of presumption. We don't have control, it's about rejecting worldliness. And so today we're going to look at this health problem that affects our fitness. And it's a kind of heart disease that impacts our ability to be fit disciples of Jesus. And the heart disease that James is talking about and that we'll discuss is this heart disease of misplaced treasure. Okay, this is a genetic predisposition that we all have by being sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, is that we have this genetic heart condition of misplaced treasure. And now verse 3 is the key. I think this is the insight. This is where we go, go into this passage where James says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. And so the diagnostic question that we're going to be looking at with this genetic predisposition for misplaced treasure is, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? What am I treasuring? To be a wise follower of Jesus is to continually ask yourself, to apply this diagnostic question, where is my treasure? And so using this analogy of fitness and health, we're going to explore this heart disease of misplaced treasure. And so you can see in your bulletins, we're going to look at the, the, the diagnosis. What does that mean? What are the symptoms that we can recognize? I'm going to go on a limb and say all of us have the symptoms. And then what's the prognosis? What's the future? All right, so let's start with the di diagnosis. Take a look at verse 1. James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. All right, big question that we have. Really, really, really important question is who are the rich? Who are the rich that James is speaking about, at least, if he's not speaking to? And now, for James, you have this very specific class of person. These are wealthy landowners. And as we see in our passage, these are landowners who are oppressing the poor. In fact, the rich are those who are likely oppressing so many of the people that James is writing to. 
If you go back to when we were talking about what James was all about, he's likely writing to a number of congregations. Uh, These were Jewish followers of Jesus. And we know that, that these congregations, by and large, were made up of those who were relatively poor. And so it's possible that we could all sigh a sigh of relief at this point. He's not talking about me. Now, most of us, we also know, have relative wealth. I would say all of us have relative wealth. And what I mean by that, right, there is still economic disparity even represented in this congregation. I want to be sensitive to that. But my point is the relative wealth means we're going to eat a meal today and know where that comes from. That's relative wealth. But last I checked, I'm not some landowner who exploits my workers. And I think that's probably relatively true for all of us. And yet, this is probably the strongest warning that we have in the book of James. And so why is he giving this kind of strong warning to a congregation about being rich, to a congregation that isn't rich? And I think it's because James knows that all of us have this genetic predisposition. I mentioned before that this is the key, right? Treasure. What does it mean to treasure? What, what does it mean when we talk about where, where I treasure? Uh, and so listen to Jesus in Matthew 6. This is a re- relatively well-known passage. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's a beautiful little pithy saying from Jesus here. In the Greek, it's not store up, or or store up is really translating the verb form of to treasure. So Jesus is really saying, don't treasure up for yourself treasure. Don't treasure up for yourself treasure that can be destroyed on earth. Treasure up for yourself treasure that's in heaven. And so you see there, right, two ideas of treasure. One is when we think of treasure, we think of those things I value, and yet in its verbal form, to treasure up, that's the insight. That's the heart disposition that we need to unpack. Because to treasure speaks to a kind of love, doesn't it? It's a kind of love that leads you to acquire more and more and more. Treasuring is a state of the heart. Remember, this is a diagnosis. It's misdirected love. It's the love of accumulation. It's the idea of finding my identity, my joy in acquiring and building up stuff, wealth, a portfolio. Now let's take a step back. The impatient reaction to James is to say, okay, what's the deal? Can Christians be rich or not? Can you be rich and be a Christian? Can you have a lot of possessions and be a Christian? And so you can go look through church history. You can see there are a number of voices that say, no. You cannot be rich and be a Christian. If you are rich, you need to give everything you have to the poor. Now, the more common answer throughout church history is, is sure, you can be rich and be a Christian. And maybe they'll start listing all the rich guys in the Bible, like Abraham and Job. But see, I think James, in the tradition of his brother Jesus, says that's the wrong question. It's more complicated than that because you're more complicated than that. Ultimately, it's a heart issue. Because if you're treasuring something, you are finding your deep significance in that. So what does that mean? It means treasuring doesn't mean just having. And so in this paradigm, you can be quite wealthy and yet you can treasure something different. I know a, a, a pretty wealthy believer who, who I absolutely love, and, and, and he once said to me in a very humble way, he said, I have more money than I will ever know how to spend in this life. 
And he wasn't boasting. He was saying, what are gospel works that I can contribute to? I can't spend this money, so I have this money from God to give to ministries. I have this money to be a blessing. His treasure is not in his wealth, even though he is wealthy. How many poor people are obsessed with treasure? You can be quite poor and be as materialistic as anybody. Treasuring can be fantasizing. It can be imagining. You can be a person who finds delight in counting your money, or you can fantasize about wishing you were that kind of person, but both have misplaced treasure. You see, poor and rich and everyone in between can have a heart that treasures money and possessions. It treasures stuff for what it brings or what you think it will bring you. Now, this, by the way, shouldn't come as a shock to to anyone that, that knows the Bible, There are about 367 verses devoted to prayer in your Bibles. There are 2,000 verses about money and possessions. Jesus warns about money more than any other sin, more than lust. And so we need to start with this diagnosis and say, yikes, beware of what you treasure. So that's the disease, right? Misplaced treasure. It's maybe still a little abstract, so we need to figure out what are the symptoms so I can recognize when I have misplaced treasure. So let's make this more concrete. How do we experience this heart disease? All right, so the first symptom that we'll look at from James, this might sound funny, it might sound strange, but but bear with me, because I'm just using James's language. The first symptom of this form of heart disease is a lack of weeping. It's not weeping. Now let me clarify. If the only way we think about wealth and money is always good, All the time, that might be a symptom that we are suffering from this misplaced treasure. So look at verse 1, right? This kind of scary introduction. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, this is shocking and it's jarring, predominantly because the rich, ordinarily, in our world, they don't weep or howl. It's not what they do. It's not how we think about money. If someone were to come to you and write a check for $1 million, what would you do? Well, let me tell you what I would do, and and this is going to reveal that I have more sanctifying work needed in my life. If someone gave me a check for a million dollars, I'd dance. I'd do a little dance. Should I do a dance? Maybe. You know what James would say? Maybe not. Maybe not. Money, wealth, treasure, they are not evil. But I mean it with all my heart when I say they are always dangerous. Money is not evil. Always, always, always is dangerous. If you don't have it, you wish you had it. If you do have it, oh, how it gets so close to your heart. Wealth is power. Wealth is the power to create a new you. Wealth is the power to create a new identity, a new world. It's nearly impossible for it not to puff you up. You have to actively resist treasure. What did James say in in, in chapter 1? What do the rich need to boast in? Their humiliation. And here's the thing. Money is the most compelling God, the most compelling idol there is. Hence the 2,000 verses in the Bible about money. Everything God provides, money can stand in as a God-like parody, right? Money provides security. So God provides security, identity, all of those kinds of things. Now let me give you one example of this. Money buys us comfort. Wealth comforts us well. And so let me give you a scenario that I think so many of us can relate to. Uh, Let's say you had just a terrible day at work. 
just an awful, awful day at work. So what do you do? You leave the office and you decide, I'm going I'm to stop by my favorite restaurant and I'm, I'm going to get a meal because I'm going to treat myself because it's been such a bad day. And then you, you come home, you sit down on your couch, which is a more comfortable receptacle for the human body than the majority of human beings that have lived on this planet have ever experienced. And then you're going to sit and you're going to watch TV, and it's 2022, so you get to pick whatever you want to watch, whenever you want to watch it, and you veg out. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you've done that, because I'm going to assume every hand would go up. We have all done that. Now, my point, of course, is that these are not all bad things. That is not my point at all. My point is that wealth makes this common scenario possible. And it's very likely that unlike those who don't have such comforts, you don't feel the pressure to depend on God. You don't need God to comfort you because you have things. You don't develop the same resolve to trust in the Lord. You're not pressed to. You're insulated. If our tendency is to hold on to the things that give us the best chance for meaning and power and significance and control and comfort, if that's our tendency, then wealth, of course, won't always function as a blessing to our hearts. It all depends how we use it. And so we need to strive for a posture that, of course, receives God's gifts with gratitude. That's the starting place, but also with sobriety and prayerfulness. Second symptom. Second symptom of misplaced treasure is hoarding. Now, what kind of hoarding do we see in our, in our passage? Look at verse 2. Riches rotted, garments moth-eaten. You could throw in luxury and self-indulgence in verse 5. All right, so in James's day, there are three ways that you can hoard. Basically three ways. Food, clothes, and literal storehouses of gold. And again, we can relate to this, can't we? Uh, think about food. Uh, the, the, the statistic I was, I was coming up with over and over is that 40% of food in this country goes to waste. Now that to me sounds like a symptom of spiritual sickness. I mean, can we really pray, give us this day our daily bread with one hand and then throw away 40% of our food with the other? Clothes. What happens when you throw a pile of clothes in the closet and you neglect your clothes? Well, they get dank and musty. Uh, moths create holes in your clothes. Storehouses of money, right? A, a picture of greed. One, one of my favorite cartoons growing up was DuckTales, where you have Scrooge McDuck, who in the, in the credits scene, he dives into a pool of gold coins. Hoarding, acquiring, accumulating all speak to this idea of greed. And here's the thing. Greed is a hard sin to think through because maybe more than most sins, it's always relative. Because there's always someone richer than me and there's always someone poorer than me. And so when it comes to greed, we so easily say, well, I don't, I don't think I have the problem because I'm not the worst. No one thinks I have a greed problem. Uh, in, in my ministry, I think I've had every sin confessed to me except one. That's probably not true. But greed, I've never had anyone say they're greedy. Greed is always having a little more, which means what? We're never greedy. But biblically speaking, greed is simply just the love of acquiring. It's the love of possessing. By acquiring and consuming, I try and manufacture what only God can provide. And remember, you don't have to, to acquire. Treasuring can be as simple as, if I only had this, I would be what? If only I had this, then I'd be. 
So the second symptom is a heart set on gathering, piling up, hoarding. Third symptom of misplaced treasure is, I'm going to call it self-indulgence, and it's really a me-centeredness. Money is all about me. And so look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, again, this is a very specific setting, isn't it? What's going on here? Well, remember the wealthy landowner that I mentioned at the beginning. You have the harvest coming in. And so think of Jesus' parable of the day laborers, right? Uh, If the harvest is coming in, you need to go into the city square. You need to hire laborers to come and work the harvest for you. And it would often look like, work for me for the full day, and you will get $100. So the scenario I think James is presenting us is that he hires the workers, and yet the harvest isn't quite what he expected. Or maybe he hired too many people and all of a sudden he realizes, you know, the profit I thought I was going to make, I'm not going to make. The question then is, will you take the loss or will you pass it along to your workers? I'll pay you $100 to work for me. The harvest wasn't quite as good, so here's $75. But you said $100. Well, I'm not getting that much of a harvest and therefore I have to pass my losses on to you. This is an issue of integrity. Will you sustain more loss in order to keep your word, or will you break your word and pass the loss to the poor man? And listen, in this culture, it was easy to do. Uh, The landowners had the money, they had the land, they even served on the courts. There was no power for the day laborer in this situation. There was no one to hold the boss accountable, which means it's an issue of integrity. What do you do when you're alone and no one knows? But here's the kicker, you're not alone. Because there are two voices crying. The wages and the day laborers and the Lord of hosts hears those cries. Keep in mind, the landowner didn't really break any laws. And yet justice is not found. Because the Lord of hosts hears the cries of the harvesters. It goes right past HR to the Lord of hosts. Make no mistake, justice will be accomplished. Any attempt, I think this is the key here, any attempt to make a buck at the expense or exploitation of another person, that goes right past HR to heaven's throne. Again, some of you are bosses, uh, but you typically don't have the power and authority to exploit workers in this way. But here's the application. If you're willing to sacrifice integrity to save a buck, you have the symptom, don't you? If you're willing to sacrifice integrity to save a buck, you are treasuring wealth. Filling out your tax returns. There's no one there. You're alone in the room. To save a buck, you sacrifice integrity. You're treasuring wealth. Uh, Many of you who've worked in the service industry, what's the worst crowd to work? The post-church crowd. Why? I don't know why. I don't know why. But it's a, it's a symptom. It's a symptom of, of wealth, right? So fourth symptom, right? We got three. Here's fourth symptom. Uh, luxury and self-indulgence. This is where it gets tricky. This is where wisdom is needed. Uh, this is a person who refuses to experience lack or want. Look at verse five. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So the question for all of us, right, is where is the line of luxury and what does it look like to cross that line? For every person whose spending habits we judge and say, man, that person is opulent, there is someone looking over our shoulders and saying, that person, you too, are are spending in a way that's unwise. But this, of course, is a question of wisdom. 
On the one hand, we receive and enjoy with gratitude the good gifts of God, knowing that not a single gift satisfies the depths of our hearts. And so we have to hold them loosely. We have to see the promises that goods hold out for us as nothing but lies. It's very limited what they hold out for us. God has blessed us with earthly treasures so that we might bless others. If money is only ever thought of in terms of myself and me, that's the check engine light of our hearts. We are to use God's gift to love our neighbors. And and this can look a, a number of different ways. This isn't just generosity and giving. Of course, that's a huge one, isn't it? But it's also the idea of supporting others in their businesses and services and paying just and fair wages. Isn't that loving your neighbor? Of course it is. But we have to resist the narrative of consumption and materialism that drives our culture. We don't keep up with the Joneses. Because especially if the Joneses are not following Jesus, that's spiritual darkness. They're looking for something to satisfy them, which never could. So why would you join that rat race? Let them have it. You have something better. We have to treasure the giver. Every day our prayer, especially in the context of this society that God has called us to bear witness in, is God help me treasure you the giver and never the gifts. Help me to treasure you the giver, never the gifts. Again, verse 3, I've identified this as the key to the passage, right? The problem is laying up treasure in the last days. And so I think the big question for us as God's people, has luxury and self-indulgence distracted you from remembering that you are in the last days? See, there's a chronological marker there, isn't there? There's a time marker here. Has luxury distracted you from remembering that you are in the last days? Because we live in a world that says, no, this is going to go on forever and ever, and so indulge and so consume, and yet we're in the last days, which means that we know that the wisdom and power of God is revealed in a crucified man. That means something to us. It means something to those things that we value. It has to. The last days is the reality that death has been defeated, that the tomb is empty, and that everything, everything will be renewed in the new heavens and new earth. This is not all there is. Everything, including how we think of wealth and money and treasure, has to be seen through the lens, the prism of a world that is passing away. None of this lasts. None of this treasure endures. And the reason why we don't just go spin is because there is something that does endure. And we set our treasures on that kingdom. And so as we self-diagnose, am I living rightly in the last days? Am I becoming the kind of person God has destined me to be? Right? We got the passport. Baptism is our passport. We even get care packages, meals from home through the Lord's Supper. That's our identity. That's what we have in full. Are we living according to that passport? Am I becoming the kind of generous, hospitable, serving, God-reliant, Christ-like person that God has destined me to be? Or am I building a wall, a pile of treasure? That's the diagnosis. Those are the symptoms. What's the prognosis? James is intense, isn't he? The idol of wealth is terminal. It will destroy you if left untreated. This is what James wants you to see. It's why he's talking this way. 
That's why this is probably the hardest passage in this whole book. If, if you're going to be free from the love of money, this is the way. You have to see the danger of money and wealth when it comes into contact with the human heart, including yours and mine. So first part of verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Yikes, right? You know, it's interesting because gold and silver don't corrode. They don't rust, they tarnish. And so how are they corroding and rusting? And James does some spiritual alchemy for us. He says silver and gold, when they come into contact with the human heart and they rest on the heart, they rust. In other words, you could say our, our, our hearts can rust anything. So what does this look like? Well, your treasures consume you. Your possessions possess you. You can't have enough. You burn with this desire for more and more, and it's insatiable. You burn with the desire for more, and if it's left untreated, if you are satisfied in that, then James's warning is that this will lead to an eternal burning. Misplaced treasure is destructive. It'll destroy you. And James says, not only will it destroy you, let's look at the destructive force of it in the world. In verse 6, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. Who is the righteous person? There are two answers. I think they're both right. It's both the group and an individual. It's a group. It's Christians. It's poor Christians who have suffered at the hands of, of, of the oppression of the rich. And so you can think of Jesus in Matthew 25. He's speaking to this group when, when he talks about the least of these. When Jesus says, when you fed, when you gave water to, when you cared for, when you clothed the least of these, you did that for me. And Jesus sides with the least of these. He's united to them. That's the group. That's the group. But of course, this passage is about Jesus. There's no way that you read of the righteous one who is killed and murdered, uh, the, the righteous one who is oppressed. There's no way you read of the righteous one from James and, and, and you think that James is not referring to Jesus. Because he is really the only truly righteous man who deserved the world, but he became poor. He came preaching hope to the poor. He was hated by those who wanted to cling to their power. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver that corroded the heart of Judas. And Jesus never resisted. He, he never opened his mouth. The gospel says Jesus became poor so that we might become rich, so that we might treasure something, really someone who can satisfy and provide a stable identity and sure security and infinite comfort. What does the idol of money, of earthly treasure, get you? We think it provides us with more and more, but the issue is we can never have enough. And so here's the irony, right? As you consume and consume and consume, you realize you actually have nothing. You think money can bring you riches, and in the end, it's left you poorer because you never stopped buying. You were never filled. And friends, the goal is to be filled. We think the money, uh, that the idol of money gives us power, and yet aren't we just slaves to it in the end of the day? We think that money can give us the approval of others and then we just start adding those parties to whom we are enslaved to. We think wealth gives us control when really we're, we're, we're the ones being controlled because it will never be enough. And so what is the way of wisdom? How do we get fit? How do we get spiritually healthy? It's not just found in the rejection of serving wealth. That's only half the picture. It's found in serving a better master and better Lord, Jesus. 
The good life, the rich life, is found in serving the one who gave everything to you before he ever demanded anything of you. Jesus himself sacrificed uh, himself in our place for our sins, including our idolatry and our greed, and he says, rest in me. The Lord says, give control of money over to him. He doesn't just mean your purse, he means your heart. Because what he is offering is true freedom. How much of our worry and anxiety would shrink if we could put our treasure in the right place? How much insecurity and distraction would dwindle if you and I really believed, like really, really believed that we were rich in Christ? Because friends, we are. We are. We are rich in Christ. And so treasure up for yourself treasure in Christ. For the most incredible reality you could ever imagine is the whole foundation of all of this, right? Because Jesus, his treasure is you. He treasures you so much, he values you so much, he gave himself for you. And what is our response but to put our treasure back on him? How much did Jesus treasure you and value you? He, he gave everything. And so let that news rest on your heart, where when found in him, there is no rust and there is no corrosion, but there's unshakable joy. Let's pray. Our great God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we, we are kind of grateful for this word. Only kind of. Um, every culture, every society has sins which we cling to with, with pretty tight grips, and, and it's hard not to think that we're always in this battle of, of, of treasure. We're always in this battle of, of, of finding our comfort and ease and security and power and identity in, in our bank accounts, in our possessions. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would um, free us from that idol that is not harmless, but crushes, it leads us to anxiety and despair. And Lord, by your spirit, that you would help us to leave this place not discouraged, but, but so relieved to remember the true reality which is ours, that we are rich in you. And that's not sentimental, that's not some saccharine nonsense that, that we just say to make ourselves feel better. Instead, it's an identity that's stable. It's an inheritance that's kept for us, that's un, unfading, imperishable. And Lord, would we operate out of that inheritance, out of that reality, out of, out of, out of those riches as your children, your sons and daughters? Lord, would you give us eyes to see by your spirit the, the check engine lights that come on in our hearts when we look at these symptoms and, and we think of the ways that uh, we find our treasure in other things, Lord, to draw us back to you, to help us to see the folly that you would, by your spirit, build us up as those who are fit 
fit disciples, fit followers of King Jesus. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you uh, for his death on the cross. Jesus, thank you for taking our idolatry. Thank you for taking our greed. Thank you for taking our obsession with the tangible, with the things of this world, uh, that you would die to that and that in you we too have died to those things. What, what sweet relief um, as, as we think about walking in your ways and walking in your word. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the work that you provided for us. We thank you uh, that, that, that this inheritance is, again, one that is kept by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.